Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The revolution itself, the founding generation, they achieved independence, they worked toward a common goal, but they did this in spite of some really severe differences. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser discussing a growing feud between Abraham Clark and William Livingston. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser, and he's discussing the political feud between William Livingston and Abraham Clark. The politics of the revolutionary age seem to us like they should all be pretty much on the same page. Revolution is a good thing. Freedom and independence is the ultimate goal. But it really wasn't that way, and it became even messier after the revolution ended. Eric Weiser shows us today, using these two second-tier founding fathers, just how complex and sometimes frustrating the politics of the early national period can be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Weiser. Eric Weiser, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, it was some articles I'd written for the journal uh, previously, particularly um, about the loyalist Cornelius Hatfield and the uh, capture of the British supply ship Blue Mountain Valley. So I encountered Abraham Clark and Livingston uh, through my study of, of Hatfield and uh, the Blue Mountain Valley event. And um, kind of in, in studying them and diving deeper, I found that they were polar opposites in terms of their politics. And the more I learned about them, the more I found the, it fascinating, the, um, the, their differences, despite having the unique goal of, of winning the War of Independence and seeing the American Revolution through. Um, and also, um, I, I found Clark interesting um, because he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a populist. And I found that given how modern the modern cynical perceptions of the founding fathers, I found Clark to be completely against it and found him to be more of a pure version of what most Americans think of when they think of a founding father. So I thought he really bucked the, um, the, the modern cynical perception of the founding fathers. Eric, this article is really about two men. Tell us about the first, Abraham Clark. Okay, so Abraham Clark was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, um, he was born in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, which is was a small village um, not too far from Staten Island along the Jersey coast. Today, it's a heavily industrialized town called called Elizabeth. Um, Clark was a was a what today we would call a career politician. 
he had served uh, various offices um, in between the New Jersey legislature and the Congress. Uh, he was a modestly educated man. Uh, his, his primary occupation was that of a surveyor. Um, he owned a lot of land, mainly through his father and through purchases he had made in New Jersey. He was actually an only child, so he was really the inheritor of all his father, Thomas's Clark's land and everything he worked for. Uh, he was married, he had a large family, and he lived in a small home just outside of Elizabethtown. Uh, his, his politics are interesting in that he was a populist, and he had a perception of himself as a common farmer, and he championed policies that benefited ordinary people. Um, and I think psych a psychological element in that was he was physically, at least according to family genealogies and histories, he was physically weak and frail. And I think there was something psychological in that about him and that he was always advocating for people in need and, and common people. Um, he was uh, against concentrations of power and what they would call, I guess at that time, a radical Republican. Uh, he was severely distrustful of military authority in particular. And uh, he, he was really set up to succeed in the revolution because New Jersey had, it was a less prosperous state. There was a big populist element in it. And there was an expanded franchise with like lower property qualifications to vote. And this, this helped Clark and, and uh, men like him uh, succeed in political office during the revolution. Who was William Livingston? Okay, so William Livingston, he was actually, it, it's funny, and, and back to Clark for a second, I, I had never even heard of Abraham Clark until I started, uh, so I started studying uh, you know, more deeper into the American Revolution, and likewise, it was the same with Livingston. Uh, William Livingston was actually the longest-serving governor during the American Revolution, and he was the governor of New Jersey. In addition to that, he also attended the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and was a signatory to, that, uh, to the Constitution. Uh, what's interesting is that his, his revolutionary experience is in and associated with New Jersey, but the formative years of his life were mainly New York. So you know, Livingston was from an aristocratic family from upstate New York, which had ties to the uh, great Dutch families uh, like the Schuylers. So he, he grew up in Albany, and the family stayed at a place called Livingston Manor. Now, the Livingstons, which who were originally from Scotland, had a huge mercantile shipping business. And uh, so it was, I should say, or, um, Livingston uh, was the only son to not work in the business. So all, all of William's brothers were brought along by their father, Philip, to work in the family business. But uh, William actually was seen as not cut out for the family business. So after attending Yale, uh, where William went, met you know, some very influential people. And it was there that he got turned off to religious learning and really moved into an enlightenment uh, frame of mind. Um, at, so after Yale, uh, Philip, William's father, obtained a law apprenticeship for him in New York City. Um, so that he could get started as a lawyer, and at least there was something he could do. Uh, but he proceeded to lose that. He was heavily distracted. He didn't study very much. And he was actually caught uh, writing an anonymous uh, article criticizing legal apprenticeships. So his legal master caught him and actually fired him. 
So he actually, he lost his first law apprenticeship. <laughs> After that, he wanted to do the grand tour of Europe. His father said no, and instead managed to obtain another law apprenticeship um, that actually turned out to be a better fit. And um, at that time, he met a young woman named Susanna French, who helped him get serious about his legal studies and actually actually straightened him out. And just a personal event that, that was deeply wounding to him at the same time was uh, Susanna became pregnant and William and Susanna married in private. And unfortunately, the baby died in infancy, which uh, caused uh, William Livingston a ton of pain, but that was going on concurrently. <clears throat> but in that legal apprenticeship, he met two other lawyers um, who together they formed uh, a trio called the Triumvirate, which became very influential in New York politics. And together they, they published a journal uh, called the Independent Reflector, which attacked uh, political opponents and the Anglican Church in particular. William Livingston was really very much against the Anglican Church and worked to make sure that King's College, which became Columbia University, that uh, it, it did not become an official school of the Anglican Church. But uh, yeah, William Livingston, ultimately, he made a great living as a lawyer in New York City uh, due to the robust shipping enterprises coming in and out of there. And he actually served a, a term in the New York Assembly. And at the, uh, the old age of 48, <laughs> Livingston sold his practice and he retired and moved to Elizabethtown. So that's where, at this point, where he, he gets settled in Elizabethtown and then kind of becomes a, a political rival of Abraham Clark. But he, uh, he rented a home and then he built a, a palatial estate called Liberty Hall, north of Elizabethtown, and it, it still stands today. But uh, William and his wife, Susanna, had a, had a huge family, a family he very much adored. And this comes through in his letters if you ever get a chance to read some of his edited papers, which you can find at the New Jersey State Archives website, you can find his curated uh, papers. Um, some really incredibly heartfelt letters uh, written to his family. And he, he, uh, his, he was, his son-in-law was John, John Jay, and his son Brockholst uh, became a Supreme Court justice later on. Eric, without getting into too many particulars, how would you describe their relationship? It was, it was, I would say professional, but prickly. So if you examine the source material, there's many letters that uh, Clark and Livingston exchanged to each other um, while Livingston's governor and Clark's in Congress or their legislature, which are, you know, they're very professional. I mean, they, they got something they got to get done. But there are moments where in, in certain things that happen where you see a, a what I describe as a prickly relationship where they, they border on being petty, uh, insulting. And um, you can kind of feel that Livingston really didn't care for Clark. Um, and of course, a big reason for that is that, I mean, Livingston blamed Clark uh, for his recall from Congress. So Livingston was, was serving in the Continental Congress, and then when the third Congress was getting going, the state legislature recalled Livingston uh, back to New Jersey. Uh, the big reason was that he didn't support independence, and Clark was, uh, was fully on board with independence. And 
I think being a neighbor of his in Elizabethtown, I think Clark would have been front and center in, in, in Livingston's mind. And surely with how different their politics were, I, I think there was some resentment, um, which, you know, Clark may have felt for him. And, and it, it does come through in a few letters, but it feels like Livingston is much more, much more reactionary to him. But in their official duties, they, they work together and, and do what they get, have to get done when they need to. What would you say were the major issues that divided them during this time? Uh, well, the first one, like I just mentioned, was independence. So, I mean, Clark, it's interesting because Clark thought Britain very tyrannical. And Livingston did as well. But Livingston, you know, like maybe like uh, people like Alexander Hamilton, had a bit of a elitist streak in him. And, you know, he was from an aristocratic family who had done very well in the royal system. And he, he genuinely feared that chaos and mob violence was going to result from independence. Um, he also, Livingston also believed that the colonies needed to have foreign assistance before they declared independence. So they needed an alliance of some sort. So he, he really, Livingston really believed that the colonies were going to experience a lot of destruction and death and that they needed to have foreign assistance first. And Clark was fully on board with, with independence right away. And so when he was sent to Philadelphia in 1776, he, he was fully ready to vote for independence. And the legislature really guided that delegation to do so. And uh, Livingston, I'm sure, felt backstabbed and felt like there was a, compa- a cabal against him. And so I think his ego was, was severely wounded by being recalled. Um, and then there was a thing of power. So uh, Clark it, it distrusted military authority greatly. And during the war, Livingston did not have as hard of a time with it as Clark did. And there was also executive power. Clark was always trying to undermine uh, concentrations of power in American institutions, but Livingston was um, fully on board with, with more executive power. He had, you know, he was a chief executive during the war and, and he saw the issues with decentralized authority, how hard it was to prosecute a war. And so he, he favored the governor having, um, you know, expanded executive power. And then, of course, after the war, they disagreed severely on economics, and and that was especially with the paper currency issue. Um, Livingston was was a creditor, and he was severely fearful that uh, paper currency would devalue the original value of the loans he, he put out. Eric, for those who aren't familiar, could you describe why the issue of paper money was so divisive for so many people during this time? Well, the biggest was the debt. The issue was that you had a lot of creditors, maybe you know people with, of, from more means who, who had loaned out money during the war, and they were afraid that paper money would essentially be worthless, and that it would be inflated, and that the original the original loans they gave would be devalued what they get paid back with. Um, New Jersey itself had a shortage of hard currency. So the standard of the day was obviously money with intrinsic value. And uh, New Jersey had had, was a heavy net purchaser of goods. So a lot of hard specie, what they call hard currency, valuable stuff that rings, jingles, had gone out of New Jersey. 
and that that caused uh, the economy really to, to to grind to a standstill. And uh, there was a heavy amount of debt, you know, with farmers who needed relief. They needed also to be able to pay their taxes. And Abraham Clark wanted to create essentially a state central bank to uh, print and loan paper money, you know, for, for obviously for interest to get to get something into the economy. And it was creditors like Livingston that were heavily against this. And as I mentioned in the, the article, they both Clark and Livingston um, engaged in an information war where they, they published un, uh, under pseudonyms, um, you know, articles that were either for or against paper money. And, uh, you know, they got kind of nasty as, as those types of, um, you know, those types of pieces were at the time. They allowed for mudslinging anonymously. Um, so, yeah, they, they engaged in a information war that ultimately uh, Clark won. So they, the paper money did come, uh, what, what's called a land bank uh, arose, and uh, Clark and his allies got their paper money. And Livingston had to, had to essentially go along with it because the, the movement for it was very strong. And as I mentioned earlier, New Jersey had a much more populist um, element in it. What was so contentious about the election of 1789, Eric, and how was it ultimately resolved? Well, the issue, it was pretty nasty because New Jersey itself was bifurcated between the western and eastern counties, and they disagreed severely on politics, especially the paper money issue. But what really made it this this election, the first federal election for representatives uh, to the new, you know, government under the new constitution, what really made it a, a, a lethal cocktail was the, the rules for the election themselves. It was, it was, they were very vague and, and probably the worst thing of it was there really wasn't a specific deadline for it to stop. So it was basically whenever a county um, reported they were done counting and they reported into the governor, um, it, all of them had to be in for it to really be officially over. But um, the uh, West Jersey had a really strong four-person slate. And, the, and this is one of the interesting things about it was it had been agreed upon uh, before the election that New Jersey would have four-person slates. And New- West Jersey was, was much more united than East Jersey, Abraham Clark's home country. Um, and so they were, West Jersey was able to pick a, a firm slate with Elias Bodineau, who was uh, a, an Elizabethtown neighbor of both Livingston and Clark and a friend of Livingston, he headed the West Jersey ticket. Now, East Jersey was unable to come up with a unanimous four-person slate, so they had several uh, tickets that would either have Abraham Clark or his friend um, Jonathan Dayton on the, on, on the ticket. So it was a very confused sort of, sort of affair. Um, and then it got really nasty. So politicians on both sides were smeared in the newspapers. Abraham Clark was was especially targeted. He had hit, he had made you know because I mentioned he he had issues with concentrated authority. <clears throat> Clark was much more comfortable with the Articles of Confederation than Livingston, and so he had criticized certain elements of the Constitution, and those were used against him during this election. 
Um, they made him look like, you know, he was unpatriotic. He was an enemy and not a friend to the new constitution. Um, and then of course he had championed efforts to defeat the federal requisition of, of 1785, which caused him to be labeled unpatriotic. And, you know, that he, and, you know, conflating like not paying taxes with being unpatriotic. So it was, it was a pretty nasty election. And during the election, West Jersey had a, had a really well-oiled election machine. Um, they engaged, I mean, that's what we would call today ballot harvesting. They were very aggressive in moving ballot boxes around their counties, uh, you know, racking up more vote totals. And then S and then Clark, Clark's side, S Essex County simply really refused to stop and report the results. So at some point, I mean, it really a month after the election was going on, uh, Livingston, it was, I mean, these are under the official rules, Livingston and the privy, his privy council, um, at some point needed to, you know, get together and put an end to the election, which they did. And they, they called, uh, Bodenov's West Jersey ticket, the winners. So they declared West Jersey, the winners, but that wasn't the end of it. Uh, so like immediately after the election, uh, petitions, from the East Jersey counties arrived in Congress, uh, you know, saying the election was a sham. It was poorly, it was poorly run. There was cheating going on. And I mean, there was really nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing really to referee this or settle it. No, no precedent. So Congress actually investigated, created a committee to look into the election or the, the election irregularities and to, um, you know, see, to, to basically decide who the winner was. And they, they, they determined that Livingston had made the right decision and that the West Jersey ticket uh, were, were ultimately winners. Eric, you call these men second-tier founders. What's going to happen to them in the end? Well, you know, they didn't. Both of them, now they were middle-aged uh, when the revolution started, and Livingston died uh, not long after uh, he died, not long after the '1789 election, and what's what's kind of sad for him is that he, you know, he did retire at 48, and he, he, you know, he was supposed to be reading his books and studying or doing his maybe his polemic writing, but that's it. But then he got heavily involved in politics, and the the relaxing retirement he always wanted uh, eluded him, um, and. Uh, yeah, that's he. Now his family. He went on to have, like I mentioned, a son that wound up a Supreme Court justice. Um, I mean, he did really well for himself. He had a great, interesting life, but uh, he never got the uh, relaxing retirement he wanted to. Um, Abraham Clark didn't live lo- that much longer afterwards. Now, after that contested election of 1789, he did he did return to Congress. Uh, he was he was a staunch Jeffersonian, and he died from sunstroke in 1794. So he didn't live much long afterwards. Eric, how do you think this article helps us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, I think I think that it's a clear it's a clear um, illustration that the revolution itself, the founding generation. They achieved independence. They worked toward a common goal, but they did this in spite of some really severe differences. 
And, and honestly, as long as the United States lives under the Constitution they founded and created, these arguments have repeated themselves, you know, these liberty versus power arguments for generations and probably will after you and I are gone. And I, I think that um, it's one of the fascinating things of American history and about American government. Eric Weiser, thanks again. Thanks, thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>